sorry, wait, I can't. What is this? What is the chat happening right now? Do I need to? Yeah, Josh, what are, what are you chatting us about? Oh, I, you could ignore it. I, oh, sorry, I, I just saw it flashing. It's hard oh, to ignore yeah. when it's so, flashing on our screen. <laughs> so wait, so wait, I didn't, let that me... doesn't flash for me. That chat is a bad way to reach us. Okay, yeah. hold signs like a hostage. Yeah. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet senior writer Liel Leibowitz. Shalom from the bunker. And tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Good day, good night. Where are we? What day is it? <laughs> Whatever it all, oh, they're all the same now. Uh, we spoke this week with returning Jew of the Week Jesse Eisenberg from his bunker. He was kind enough to join us from his self sequestration. Uh, in Tinseltown or Hollywood, the, the stars—who knows where they are? They are—they're they're just like us, islands. stuck in <laughs> their are, bedrooms, they kind of, going crazy. <laughs> they kind of are just like us. He has two movies coming out this week, and we talked a little bit about what the coronavirus uh, means for him and for Hollywood and for art in general. It was a really neat conversation. We, of course, never see each other in person anymore. So thank goodness for uh, the magic of technology. Can we take a minute to describe, apropos visuals, what we look like right now? <laughs> Do we have to? <laughs> I think so, because Stephanie uh, is sitting in her in her very chic bedroom, and about half the frame until a minute ago was dominated by Cat Stevens, who had a very similar expression on his face to that Marlon Brando had throughout half of Apocalypse Now. It's a kind of look that says, I've abandoned all commitment to civilization, and now I think about nothing but murder. One, who's Marlon Brando? Two... <laughs> I disagree with your characterization of Kat. He and I have become like a symbiotic being together. And I told oh, you this last Lord. week, like, but we're all cats now. Like, we need to take our cues from them. Think about it. Oh. All we have oh. is the ability to look out the window longingly and look at the trees outside. Our days are scheduled by mealtime. Like, that's the only structure I have in my day is mealtime. And I'm not even done with my metaphor about finding shiny things around my apartment and being entertained by them. Um. And, and cats also really like social and physical distance. They are very discerning about whom they allow into their Truly. I mean, inner sphere. Right? They've been doing this for millennia and we're just learning. Soon I'll be using the litter box. Um, <laughs> <and> you know. <laughs> As my friend said, we'll be fine if we run out of toilet paper. We'll just start using the litter box. <laughs> I would say that Josh and Liel uh, look like Grizzly Adams, but they did a month ago. So nothing new there. <laughs> nothing right. to report here. Mark, what's going on with your facial hair? Let's 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 break. Let's unpack this. Well, why don't you guys talk about it? I mean, I, I'm not the most impartial discussant. I said when I first saw it that your new name should be Massimo. <laughs> so okay, so we talked. I think it was yesterday on Zoom. It could have been a hundred years ago, but I think it was yesterday. And Mark, you had like the barest wisp of a mustache, but like a very clean shaven everywhere else. And it was very jarring to see. Um, today, right. you've well, grown in a little bit around your, like your, is this, our, is this a Harry's ad or a Harry's non-ad? Um, no, Harry's was very important in bringing me from beard to mustache. Look, I went six, five or six days, which is always when I cave. Uh, I get so itchy. I finally realized, you know, Sid said to me, she said, I think you either suffer from more itchiness than other men. Like I, I really can't wear wool socks and even a very woolen sweater is difficult for me. Or you just complain about it more. Or basically it was like either you actually suffer more or you're just a bigger pussy about it, which are sort of ontologically like they might be the same. You know, is pain real? Is it in your head? Like same thing. If you feel it, it's real. Right. So is pain real? Or are you just weak? Or you... <laughs> So I got to about day six, which is always, I always have these, like, I'm going to, I'm going to go two weeks. I'm going to crash through day five or six, day six. I shaved it off. But then I thought, wait a second, I can still salvage something. And I left the mustache. Sid keeps saying to me that I look exactly like Adolf Hitler, which is absurd. You look way better. 
only if you think all people with mustaches look like Hitler do I look like Hitler. What I really look like is is a different dictator. There's some Stalin, Saddam Hussein, perhaps. Notes of Mussolini. Yeah. What you really look like is like you're putting a, a home production of Boogie Nights with your family. funny we've been talking about our hair episode and we've actually started reporting it out and and recording for it it's a different game now like my hair has never been this long we are like what's gonna happen is no one gonna touch up their roots anymore like are we gonna all just like have beards like what's what are we gonna all look like at the end of this and i think that's gonna really change the societal like the standards like why would i ever get my hair colored if i know that i could go a month without it you know what i mean like there's all these things that i think are going to change our understanding of what we need to do right Basically, everyone is going to look like me, like someone who catches squirrels in the park. That's be great. (laughs) But it's funny because we're all really stripped down to our barest essential. Um, When I was younger, I had very, very long hair. I kind of woke up the other day and I realized that my hair looks exactly like it did when I was in middle school. Interestingly, my beard is also exactly the same shape and length as it was in middle school. (laughs) (laughs) It's not even a joke. So before we get to the news of the Jews this week, as you all know, I got off Facebook about a year or two ago, although I sneak back on on Sid's account from time to time. So maybe that means that I'm just a poser in saying that I'm off social media since I can always lurk on Sid's account. I seldom do. Then this week, Josh is like, look, you did that Facebook chat with the viewers. People dug it. You should really start up on Facebook again. Just call your... So I started an account. The name is Mark Jewcaster. Uh, unorthodox is the great Jewcast. <laughs> this means you legally change your name, right? And I'm not accepting any friends. It exists only to join the unorthodox Facebook group. Jewcaster begin- sounds like an awesome like <laughs> action show from the 80s. It's like Airwolf meets Jewcaster. No, it's I'm a I'm a rock star who plays a Jewish Fender Stratocaster is what it is. Like that's that's my axe. And I was in the group for like one minute and I was already so upset and so seething. <laughs> About some of the comments that I logged off Facebook. Wait, about like, they, you weren't Mark, like oh upset my. about the internet writ large. You were upset about our Facebook group that exists solely to bring together people who like this podcast. And our Facebook group is is five thousand people who like our podcast. But I happened to alight on some critiques of me this week, and I was immediately about to write back to everybody and defend myself. And I realized this is insane. Um, but I did think. But now I have to scratch the itch, right? Now it's like when you have the earworm, you have to listen to the song to get rid of the earworm, right? You basically read the comments is what you're saying. There was this comment, a few comments that took me to task for the comment I made. We were talking with Ben Cohen, author of The Hot Hand, uh, the most important new nonfiction book published in the last month. And we were talking about my grandfather, Jimmy, who was married six times. Ben was joking, could you have a hot hand in marriage? Like if you... If if you're on a streak, if the first no, couple are good, is the Liel third even better? No, this book relates to marriage. Let's... <laughs> and, okay. That Liel might also have happened. And I mean, Josh, you pl- play the clip. By it. So uh, does this apply for a same, I don't know, marriage? Oh. Like if you marry two or three people in a row, the fourth is going <laughs> to be like there. Guy, no, like, That's actually know. what my grandfather was married six times. So he's like, Grandpa Walter, hold on a second. No, Jimmy was married go, six go times. By Jimmy, yeah. right. But that's a failure. The thing about marriage is if you're having more than one, it's because you suck at it. Right. There's no hot, no, what would the I hot mean, hand be? I mean, if you're, you know, you're coming in, like, you hold on a second. Really I, nice. I, I, okay, I, I wrote a book. That's fine. Your grandfather was married six times? He yes. was. He was. It's for a future episode. Okay. Yes. But that's but that's the opposite, right? There's no way to have it. So as you could hear, it was in the context of me as I have before, being very self-deprecating, self-lacerating indeed, about my grandfather who was married 
six times, not three times, six times. This is my dad's dad. And then, yes, I did segue to make what sounded like a general comment that if you're divorced, it means you suck at marriage. And so people were saying, wow, that one stabbed me through the heart. How could Mark say that? All I can say is, obviously, I don't believe that every divorcee sucks at marriage. That would be the stupidest thing in the world to believe. And nothing in anything I ever said would suggest that I am that heartless (laughs) or stupid. Also, we were thinking about the hot hand. And obviously, marriage is not a good candidate for hot hand analysis. People... They do. They listen so closely to what we say. And I sometimes just, on the one hand, it's an honor that they take us so seriously and want us to be so good. On the other hand, you want them to also know that we have not showered in three days. So probably (laughs) everything we say should be kind of discounted a bit. Right. On the other hand, two things. One, we're just, we're just three dumb schmucks, right? We just started a podcast. (laughs) Like, please, schmuck ass. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but the other thing is that we have always treated the podcast as a as a place that we don't edit heavily, where we say the dumbest shit that bubbles up from the depths of our souls. So we can either be that real with people, in which case we're going to say stuff that normally we'd reserve for our spouses, and then they look at us and be like, that wasn't your best self. We'd be like, yeah, it wasn't. Or we could just do a lot more editing, and I don't want to be that guy. So I'm glad we left it in, and I apologize for saying that people who have ever been divorced suck at marriage. Obviously untrue, and I don't believe it. Right. Especially as the last two weeks prove we all suck at marriage. <laughs> right. And I also want people to be a little more compassionate, I think. And men do Can that. Can all those things be held together? I think so. Uh, how are you, Stephanie? I'm fine. The thing that sort of kept me sane over the past however many weeks we've been inside is that I was working on this project for Tablet, which is a full redesign of the Tablet site. And that went live this morning. And so if I seem particularly haggard, it's because we were sort of up all night getting this ready. And I'm so excited because it's a complete reconceptualization of what Tablet is and what it could be. And the podcast stuff is so much better. You could see all of the shows we have, which is a bunch of shows. It's exciting. And, you know, it's funny, this project has been in the works for, I'd say, like a year and a half. Sort of interesting that it launches right now in the middle of this crazy weird time. But I actually think it's it's right, you know, this idea that People are turning to familiar places more than ever. I mean, we're a news outlet, but we also provide, I think, like a community resource. And so kind of happy that now everyone really has the time to like dig into our crazy new site, which looks different. It functions different. And, you know, send me your emails about how much you hate it. I don't know. As one of our colleagues said, and I I think that actually is a very poignant statement. It's like so many websites that you go to these days look like they were just designed to have blocks of content drop indistinguishably on Facebook and you just click on them because they're just like attention getters. This really, this redesign really looks like a return to like old school, traditional newspaper values, the days in which people actually gathered around print and, and read even things that they didn't think that they would necessarily be interested in. It's this kind of, you know, front page of the internet type of feeling, which I love. Can I ask you both a question that I've been struggling with? What... Is there a particular Jewish response or Jewish feeling about COVID-19? You know, we've been seeing some people write, there have been articles about, well, we, we, we've always dealt with anxiety. It's as, if, it's as if we've been training for this for 2,000 years. And then there are the people who are like, Jews need to get together physically to pray. What a cruel, this is a crueler cut for us than for others because we can't even get 10 people in a room to get, like, do you feel there's anything specifically or interestingly Jewish about COVID-19? I'm not sure I do. I've, I've been curious what, you guys think, Stephanie Liel? 
the best way that I can think about it is honestly that Passover is coming up. And I think that has colored the, the experience and the perception of all Jewish people, which is how am I going to do this thing that I usually fly to see my family for? I, you know, I think that's the way we're thinking about it. But yeah, I mean, I, I can buy into all this, these, these explanations, you know, someone the other day told me that like, this was the earth trying to get us to slow down. And I was like, okay, like people all, we all sort of like tell ourselves what we need to get through this. Um, I think what's interesting to me is the, the the Jewish community angle and the fact that like what does it mean to be Jewish if you can't gather, um, if you can't assemble? Right. How do we actually experience that? And I don't remember if I said this last week, so if I did, you could cut it, Josh. But but my father in law Jesse was telling me that there was a um, a virtual minion at his synagogue, and so he joined it. And usually it's like twelve people, and this time it was like sixty. And so there's a number of things there, right? Obviously, one, everyone's sitting at home. It's really easy to to go online, right? You don't have to go to synagogue. But also people want this more now, right? Like people are turning to to Jewishness and to spirituality in a way that you don't really see necessarily in all the same people. I agree. I mean, look, the weirdest thing for me is when it's Shabbat and you can't go to shul, it's Shachris and you can't go daven in a minion. Uh, I'm not saying that that puts me in some category that has been particularly hard hit in any way. But the rhythms of life for observant Jews are definitely thrown into more chaos, I would say, than a lot of other people for whom, yes, there were congregations by by virtue of going to work or hanging out with friends, which is what we all do. But there wasn't anything kind of prescribed into the system that required them to do this several times a week. I was feeling very cranky about all the Jewishly specific commentary and then I got an email from my rabbi, John J. Tilson. It was a long email that that really talked about the Jews in the desert and about the, you know, the plagues. And he quoted the unnamed sage in Mechilta of Rabbi Ishmael, who talked about once the destroyer is released, it does not distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And it was really about, about how indiscriminate plague is. But then he concluded by quoting Psalm 30, tears may linger for the night, joy comes with the dawn. And when I read Joy Comes with the Dawn, you know, sometimes it's translated as joy comes in the morning. I just broke down. It was just like something about him ending with that line of of the psalm that like we're in the night, but the dawn will come. Joy will come with the dawn. And then I went and read the Hebrew translation. And it was, I just, it was like a line of sacred scripture was exactly what I needed. And I'd been holding all of this inside. And that line just kind of like opened the gate. Amen to that. It's like the Florence and the Machine song. It's always darkest before the dawn. Sorry, did I? <laughs> As it was written in Trek date Florence and the Machine. There's another rabbi somewhere who said that to her congregation or his congregation, and that was awesome. <laughs> As Emma Correct. Watson says, Correct. joy comes in the morning. First Passover Seder is two weeks away, which under the best of circumstances is not a lot of time to prepare. And we certainly are not in the best of circumstances, but we are in this together. We know that many of you are daunted by the prospect of suddenly having to host a Seder, likely at home without your extended family. Um, We're definitely dealing with that ourselves on our ends and we understand. So to help ease your way into it, we're launching a daily Zoom tutorial that we're calling Seder Academy. It will be at 4 p.m. Eastern each day, a video conference that will feature the editors of Tablet Magazine and your unorthodox hosts and more. 
more. We'll be offering ideas, recipes, and inspiration, and you'll be able to ask us whatever's on your mind in these very, very strange, plague-filled pre-Passover days. So join us for the first installment today, Thursday, March 26th at 4 p.m. Eastern. The link is bit.ly slash tablet Seder Academy. And if you miss it, you can watch the video of it on that same link, bit.ly slash tablet Seder Academy. And each day at 4 p.m., same link, same time, videos will be posted on tablet once they're over. So even if you miss it at 4 p.m., you can go and check it out. So again, bit.ly slash Tablet Seder Academy. That's T-A-B-L-E-T-S-E-D-E-R-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. And we hope to see you there. So big in news of the Jews this week, uh, the convergence of the coronavirus and Israel's first lady, Gal Gadot. I have not watched this version of the John Lennon song, Imagine, that she put together with a bunch of other people. But would somebody explain to me why everyone's so mad? (laughs) Gal Gadot basically did an Instagram video that was like, you know, I'm getting philosophical. I'm thinking about how this affects all the people around the world. And it like really got me inspired. And she starts singing the first, the opening Bars of Imagine by John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. And then it sort of flips to all these different celebrities singing like a line or two. And it's like, it's Kristen Wiig. I mean, it's just, it's Mark Ruffalo. It's, it's, it's not an entirely unfamiliar genre. It kind of reminds me how a bunch of celebrities recorded what's going on after, I think, 9-11. That came out in 2001. And so that was like a response, like, we're all in this together. So yeah, a lot of it is like, like I didn't actually know Kristen Wiig had such a good voice. She kind of does. Like, these people, are, it's like they're really, really singing. Because it's, it's a hard song to sing. You can't sing it if you have, like, you can't sing it if you have a bad voice. So everyone's like really going for it. And there's just like an earnestness that's like a, like a real treakliness about it. But I wasn't bothered by it. Like, I wasn't offended. I think... A lot of people were deeply offended by the video. I was just like, oh, this is awkward to watch because it's always awkward watching people do things earnestly. Liel, what's your take? As the author of the world acclaimed column This Week in Gal Gadot. I hope it makes it through the redesign. I should say that I'm, I'm very disappointed with the haters. The singing is horrible. For today, yeah. But at the same time, it's impossible to watch this and not realize that these are just you know, scared, normal people who also happen to be wealthy and ridiculously good-looking, just trying to do something to meet this moment, which is difficult and uncertain for all of us, really to kind of walk away from this with some particular sort of bile struck me as so mean-spirited and frankly dumb. It's it's impossible to believe that I'm actually siding with celebrities, which is like the culture I kind of despise the most, but it actually made me feel bad for these very rich entitled people. Well, no, I mean, I think people like wanted something to get angry about almost like there's like there's so much uncertainty. This was like mm-hmm. a really easy thing to get mad about. The funny thing, like there are a lot of random celebrities. Like I actually didn't recognize a lot of people in there. And I feel like if maybe I'm too old, I'm out of the game, but... That was Will Ferrell, by the way. It's before your time. No need for greed and hunger. I I recognize him, but so... And he has a really good voice, too. Um, But the funny thing is, like, I was trying to imagine, like, Gal Gadot, like, DMing all these people on Instagram, being like, 
hey, Kristen Wiig, like, love your stuff. Do you want to be part of my video? Like, because she's just like, so like, upbeat and funny. And I'm like, did her publicist reach out to their publicist? Like, how did this happen? And also, I, I love this accent more than I could tell you. Just to hear, imagine all the people <laughs> living for today. Uh, uh, uh. So to answer... To answer your question, Stephanie, I've always wondered that. I've always wondered, like, do celebrities just, are they distributed a celebrity directory? Are they given a password to, like, a, a website that has just a, a, an Excel doc of all of the celebrities? Well, you know that they have their own dating app, right? You know about the celebrity dating app. Raya. No. There's a celebrity-only dating app that's, like, a Hollywood dating app that you have to be, like, a certain kind of, like, A or B lister to be on. And then they just date each I, other. Like, I know people who are on it. You can get on it if, you know, if you're not a celebrity. I mean, I'm on it. I'm just, I don't want to. That's the app I don't use. <laughs> not a lot of people know that, including my wife. Yeah, what, but, if you're, you know. what if you're like a mid-list, mid-list ethnic podcaster? Like, could we, God forbid think, anything happens to our marriages. What, are we, do we qualify? Is it like getting certified on Twitter, which I could never get I, back I, when I was on Twitter? That's why you left social media. <laughs> people are getting mad at Gal Gadot. I saw something much more like eerie and gross on Twitter that I want to share with you. It actually came through. My girl, Irene, she sent this to me and goes, is this weird? How do you feel about this? It's Kristen Bell. And she basically regrams like someone else's post. And it says, to put things in perspective for those of us feeling a bit stir crazy already, Anne Frank and seven other people hid in a 450 square foot attic for 761 days, (laughs) quietly trying to remain undiscovered to stay alive. We could all do our part to keep everyone safe and spend a few weeks at home. Um, whoa. Okay. Okay. So... (laughs) First of all, Kristen Bell can do no wrong. I know, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, this like, is the woman to give us maybe, Veronica Mars and like, The Good Place. She's fine. She can, and Frozen. Maybe a little wrong. That might be a little wrong. No wrong. That's okay. But here's the other thing. Speaking to that, I hadn't heard that one, though. That's brilliant. Speaking to the Gal Gadot thing and the Kristen Bell thing, again, neither one of which I've seen, but I actually don't have to to say this. I don't understand the impulse to want to take offense. I would so much rather not take offense. I would so much rather look at something and be like, that's awesome. That like cute. I err on the side of thinking right. that's fucking amazing. Like I always left movies that we kind of, you know, when you'd see a movie with a friend and, and you'd walk out, you'd both kind of know it sucked, but it was a little uncomfortable to admit you'd both wasted money and sat next to each other. So you kind of want to like it. Well, it's like a restaurant. You don't want to like not like your meal at a new restaurant. Right. You want to find the way, a good who are you like, well, the of dessert was you great. want to not like it. Such small portions. What are you, what are you saying here? Of this Instagram story. It's, I just like... It never occurs to me to be like, that's horrible of that person when it's so obvious the person was well-meaning. Like if people make, and I I really, I would actually love some letters on the, from our audience or voicemails on the philosophical question of this. Like, so you see Kristen Bell do something and you can absolutely understand why there's a discourse right now that says, how dare she reappropriate Anne Frank? No one said this, by the way. I just saw this and thought this was a little like, a little dense. Okay. Okay. So Gal Gadot. So it obviously was well-meaning, right? And also, she might also be donating time That's and money and doing all sorts of other right. good things. But why hate on her when you don't have to? When you can walk through life just thinking well of people, why hate? I really, like, because it actually makes me miserable. It's not a selfless thing. It's a selfish thing. I am miserable when I'm agitated. So I really try not to be. It's just- The well-meaning part, I think, is is key because, look, I don't like anything. I walk out of, you know, 98.3% of everything I ever do thinking like, that was kind of a disappointment. I hope you I wasn't happy you with that. That wasn't, that wasn't as good as it should have been. Part of those experiences. <laughs> right. As you people know. But 
you watch something like this, and you're like, eh, whatever, you know, not great singers, but they try to do something. There are clearly good people right. trying to do some good. What the fuck is and wrong? And I will say, uh, speaking to the Anne Frank question, you know, Sid's first comment was, "My God, the long winter in the little, little house in the little house on the prairie books." Like they were stuck inside for eight months when it snowed the entire time, and they basically had to make straw during the day so they had something to burn at night so they wouldn't freeze to death. It was Ma, Pa, Laura, and Mary who couldn't see. And they were all stuck inside with only each other and maybe one Bible to read, making straw to live. Anyway, is that something to lift the spirits of, of some of us? I mean, maybe in a sort of gallows humor way. I'm not going to be mad at people for pointing that out. Enough with Anne Frank. Just like, let her be. She's not a symbol for every single thing we need her to be. I mean, the idea that like you have to be like, well, Anne Frank lived in an attic for 761 days. You could play your PlayStation over there, little kids. <laughs> And I'm like that, like, I feel like there's like, we're missing some basic parts here. Right. We all must live as if genocide is at the door at all times is not a healthy. Remember out- what like, the that's Jews not, had to do? That's not a healthy outlook. By the way, Mark, you do realize I come from a country where this is literally the national motto, right? <laughs> um, in good news for the Jews, Uncle Myron wrote to us this week, this week's letter from Uncle Myron, your uncle who always wants to tell you about Jews winning the Nobel Prize. Almost. The Abel Prize in Mathematics, which is like the Nobel for Math, because there is no Nobel for Math, was shared by two trailblazers of probability and dynamics, according to one headline. And they were unimprovably named. It was Hillel Furstenberg, age 84, and Gregory Margulis, age 74. Hold on, are we sure they're Jewish? Look, guys, talk to me when they win the Genesis Prize. (laughs) And we need some updates from Israel. Uh, Liel, you're our Israel correspondent. Uh, You want to give us any updates from Israel? I do. Um, We will go from from the solemn to to the ridiculous. So sadly, Israel has had its first and to date, as we record on Monday night, only fatality from the coronavirus, 88-year-old Holocaust survivor Arya Evan. His family said he was strong until the end. They regret that they couldn't be there by his side for his final moments, so he's baruch. On, on a much lighter note, uh, Israelis, as per always, are finding very creative ways to deal with, uh, with this situation, including a picture that by now I think a lot of us uh, had seen of an Israeli man who could not leave his house and therefore walked his dog via drone, which is such a great <laughs> idea. Startup nation, indeed. It's like, there you go. And finally, uh, in, in news that I, I really tried very hard to come up with something kind of snarky to say about it, but every time I tried, my heart just melted because I think it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Israel had sent uh, El Al planes to every corner of the world to collect all those Israelis who were stranded somewhere and wanted to come home. And last week, the last plane, I think, arrived from Peru bringing just throngs of Israelis who just wanted to be sequestered with their families. So take that, America. Why don't we do that for our people? <laughs> take that, Delta. Yeah. Take that, exactly. Boeing. What's wrong with you? Delta won't even bump me to first class on a flight in which nobody's <laughs> sitting in first class. And I'm Sky Miles. I've drunk the Sky Broth, as you can read about in John Hodgman's book. And you're a celebrity. And I'm a celebrity. If I'd stayed on Twitter long enough, I would have been certified. Um, in fact, I'm not only a celebrity, I'm one of the chosen people, which means, according to ABC News, that uh, someone's trying to give me the coronavirus. ABC News reported that according to bulletins from the FBI, racist extremist groups, including neo-Nazis and other white supremacists, are encouraging members who contract the novel coronavirus to spread the contagion to cops and Jews. 
The FBI's New York office apparently reported that, quote, members of extremist groups are encouraging one another to spread the virus if contracted through bodily fluids and personal interactions. Okay, so. I'm sorry, isn't it really hard to transfer the virus through that white sheet? (laughs) How does that work? Is there a special uh, other hole that they have or do they lift the sheet and then do it? So if a guy with really, re- a really short buzz cut runs up and licks if you. If he tries to get in your virtual minion bagel and you. it's like Fuhrer 420, <laughs> what are the numbers? 88 that we're not supposed to have. Okay, here's the thing. What do they do if it's a, a Jew who is a cop? Do they like go at you double? Oh my God. Double points. But this is the thing, like, I we've always <laughs> talked about how anti-Semites are actually obsessed with Jews. Who is trying to give this, like, what? think about the close contact. You, you really have to be with someone or to, like, how are you that? What is the plan to go to Jewish homes? Like, why are they so obsessed with us? Like, right. they're going like, to be on J-Date. They're going to be dating us, me. trying to have sex socially with us, give us coronavirus. <laughs> so Billy Bob is like, yo, you, you know what I did on, on, on Shabbos? I, I went to the Minion and I got there at nine. I stayed all the way until 12. I went to the Kiddush and then I licked the rabbi. Um, look, it's just nice to be wanted. And the world will be as one. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. We 
Jesse Eisenberg on the show last year. He was talking about a film that he uh, executive produced, and we have him back because he has not one but two movies out this week. One in which he plays Marcel Marceau, saving Jews during the Holocaust. Here's our interview recorded last week over Zoom with Jesse Eisenberg. know Jesse Eisenberg from such movies as The Social Network, Justice League, and Zombieland, and from his Shouts and Murmurs columns in The New Yorker. He's also a prolific playwright and generally an overachiever. He has two new movies coming out, Vivarium and Resistance. Welcome back, Jesse. Thank you so much. So I have to say, you were on the show, I think like last year, talking about a film that you executive produced called The World Before Your Feet. Um, mm-hmm. And as you were walking out, I said, you know, I'd love to have you back on the show. And you said like the most magic words a Jewish podcaster could hear, which is I'm filming a movie about Marcel Marceau saving Jews during the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I was just lying because I knew it would be so perfect to hear, but it's actually true. <laughs> well, thank you for actually making that movie Resistance. Could you tell us about that story? Yeah, I mean the the actual story, of course, is unbelievable. And then, um, uh, I, but but very few people knew about it because he was kind of reluctant to talk about it. So during the war, Marcel Marceau's cousin um, was kind of helping to save these uh, Jewish kids and asked his cousin Marcel, uh, who was kind of at the time a young performer doing one man shows um, to entertain the kids. Marceau kind of reluctantly agreed because he, you know, didn't want to be distracted from his performances and then ended up like, you know, falling in love with these kids, performing for them and ultimately saving their lives. It's an amazing story. And the movie kind of shows this, you know, really interesting push and pull between wanting to be an artist and wanting to use your art for good, you know, and uh, during the most, you know, shocking of times. First of all, the movie is really wonderful and incredible. I've been a fan of Marceau for a long time. Had, of course, no idea. But is this a sort of a script that you get and you say, it's art, it's a famous biopic, it's the Holocaust. This is like Oscar fodder all over it. Uh, not really. I mean, the thing I was thinking more than anything was, um, can I do this? Can I do, you know, mime that looks credible? Uh, can I do a French accent that sounds, you know, realistic? Um no, I mean, so when you make anything, you know, you have no sense of how it's going to be perceived by the public in a year and a half. Um, but, uh, you know, what what really kind of struck me about it was was two things that felt very relevant to my life. One is that my mother, when I was growing up, was a birthday party clown who used to wake up in the morning, put the same makeup that Marcel Marceau puts on and perform for children who she really loved and who she kind of, you know, felt like uh, an affection for. And then the other thing was, you know, Marceau's family comes from really close to where my family comes from in Southern Poland. You know, uh, I imagine we share some kind of genetic link. Um, I certainly feel like I look like him. And so there was this very, you know, I don't know, this really kind of eerie feeling that, uh, you know, this thing that seems so distant and, you know, far and actually is probably related to me in some very you know, intimate way. And so how does an actor who spends so much time kind of crafting this tool of deep emotional nuance as you have all of a sudden make the shift to being a mime or, or learning the art of being a mime, which I imagine is a, is a kind of like radically different craft, no? Yeah, except the thing that struggled to kind of accomplish with doing the mime was actually like kind of being subtle and, um, you know, all the things I kind of prize in regular 
acting uh, were the things that I was lacking in the mind that ex- that's the that that takes longer to kind of uh, achieve. You know, I think like a beginner actor would probably kind of overly uh, you know be over dramatic and over emote. And once you kind of um, become more of an expert, you probably find subtlety and nuance that can only come with experience. And similar that was similar with mime. You know, find the kind of nuance of the performance style only after you know learn practice for you know six or nine months. So what is the hardest part about learning to be a mime? Um, well, probably the hardest part for me is just the kind of agility that is something that's not in my body. Like there's a certain kind of grace and agility that just whatever leaped over my genetics. But, you know, um, I practiced for like nine months with some amazing teachers. And by the time we were filming the movie, I kind of, I would say I like had the routines down enough to be able to kind of do them credibly. And uh, the acting style was something that just, I guess, just uh, was something that I've been practicing my whole life inadvertently. So does there like come a point in every actor's career where you're like, you know what, I'm ready for my Holocaust movie? Had it been always something you wanted to do? I, it's interesting you should say that only because it, it occurred to me like retroactively that that's probably something people do do or people look for. For me, um, the first time, like, so I, uh, when I was like 22, I wrote a play about my cousin um, who survived the war and I stayed with her in Poland. She's alive in Poland now. And, um, you know, I stayed with her in Poland and I wrote a play about it and Vanessa Redgrave played her and we did it, the play, you know, a hundred times in New York and the play gets done elsewhere. And so that was kind of like my statement on, you know, my family's relationship to the Holocaust. Um, and then when this movie came along, you know, uh, you know, it just felt like a interesting character. You know, it doesn't take place in the camps. It doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of the kind of Holocaust themes of, because it's so focused on this artist and uh, doing this thing that was so unusual, which is, you know, bringing kids across the border, um, using his mind to kind of distract them and everything. So in a way, this felt like transcended that genre a little bit, I guess, in the same way my play did, because my play took place in modern day. So I think, you know, if you're a Jewish person in the arts, at some point, you'll explore that part of history by virtue of its presence in our culture. But uh, the way I've done it two times has been, I say, a little you know, off the beaten path. I think one of the the sort of odd and oddly gratifying things about watching the movie now in, in our age of coronavirus-informed social distancing is that this is a, a very apropos movie for the moment, isn't it? I mean, kind of tight environments, uh, no ability to kind of roam freely outdoors, the ability or the importance of kind of like entertaining yourself as you do it. Does that occur to you? Are you looking at the movie now through a different lens? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, it's probably impossible to watch something and not, uh, you know, filter it through whatever, especially if it's something this unusual, uh, but whatever, you know, kind of moment you're in. And certainly, yeah, this movie overlaps with that in this strange way of, you know, this kind of insidious fear that you can't kind of exactly, you know, predict, um, not to compare the virus with Nazism at all, but, you know, just the, but just the idea of kind of, um, yeah, kind of clustering together, uh, trying to, you know, in some ways, wait something out. Um, yeah, I suppose, although I, you know, hesitate to kind of compare the, uh, terrors of let's do it let's do it so but you know what i'm sorry to interrupt you but i've been sitting in a house with no one to talk to for like a week and this is this is it for me so i was watching this movie and i've seen a lot of movies that take place around not to brag but i've seen a lot of holocaust movies um people said that about you this this is 
it was really unsettling to watch this movie where there's a lot of chase scenes. They're outsmarting the Nazis. They're in the forest. They're also, you know, in France wearing the the yellow stars. And the uncertainty, the unsettling nature of the world right now, like that I was in my apartment, couldn't really leave to go anywhere. It definitely made the viewing very different. It, I didn't have the the distance of like, oh, I'm watching this safely ensconced, but I can, you know, I can live my life and all my modern pleasures. Um it was weird. It's a little eerie. Yeah. You know, I mean, the only difference that occurs to me, I mean, not the only difference, but, you know, one of the things that occurs to me, which is kind of because people are comparing this moment to like, you know, after 9-11, when we were kind of, you know, thinking about each other in a different collective way is that there's no real kind of like enemy here. And so it kind of has this different, you know, feeling that we're not like against something. Of course, in the war, obviously, there was the ultimate enemy. Um, but, uh, you know, there's no human enemy now, I'd say. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, of course, of course. I think, you know, this movie, by virtue of it having this kind of, yeah, intensity and very kind of, you know, specific uh, horror, yeah, and watching it now in these uncertain times, of course, I guess it would be. Now, I um, <laughs> I don't, I haven't, I don't watch the things I've been in, so I'm, I'm not going to be able to experience this. So, um, <laughs> this sensation that you've experienced. But, uh, yes, I suppose... I, I hope, though, that, that, that you reflect on them because the sort of first thing that came to my mind as I was watching this movie is two movies that you've been in, which I absolutely love, as I imagine a lot of our other listeners, Zombieland, which is also, not to compare zombies to Nazis, but also is this kind of tale of this vast wasteland outside and the struggle to survive against all odds. Is this a theme that keeps recurring to you because of you, or is this a complete incident? You know, I, I, I mean, I, who knows, but I do like, um, you know, I, if possible, I like kind of being in more intense kind of situations in movies, just because, I don't know, it feels more, I don't know, exciting. You know, it's when you go to acting school, you kind of learn the most intense scenarios and then you know, you end up uh, auditioning for Oreo commercials or something. So like, I do like really kind of like any kind of intense thing. So Zombieland, of course, is this kind of like silly context, but the acting has to be like very heightened because of the nature of the threat and you kind of can't half act it. You kind of have to do it. And so, um, yeah, I kind of do like that. Of course, this movie, uh, Resistance had so much, you know, it was so kind of easy to dip into the intensity of it because it's something I think about all the time. I lost family and, you know, in Poland, uh, like, you know, all of us, I'm sure. And so uh, the kind of intensity with Resistance was just so ever present. You know, we were shooting some of the movie in Munich. Uh, and so on the weekend, I, you know, visited Dachau. Uh, I took my my son who was, you know, uh, like I think one and a half or two at the time, um, to dock out with us just to, um, you know, I, I mean, uh, obviously he, he would understand anything of course. Um, and you know, he was running around kind of giggling. He didn't know what it was. He was just like running around the fields of where the barracks were. It was the shocking thing. And I was so mortified that he was laughing until I realized that actually the best kind of you know, way to, you know, to resist, as they, as we say in the movie, the best way to resist is to survive. And, um, and what was, you know, what's more surviving than a kid, you know, laughing on the place where they tried to exterminate my family, you know? And so, uh, it's had this just incredible sensation of, uh, you know, the history and the present moment kind of dovetailing in this strange way and doing this movie. And uh, that's what I loved so much about the movie is, you know, Marceau joins the French resistance, but at one point, at some point realizes that actually the way to resist is really just to survive. And instead of kind of fighting these tiny little fights on the street, um, trying to pick off one Nazi at a time, let's go back, let's save 
these children and let's have them survive. And if they can survive, we'll win. So having spoken about the, the evils of the Nazis, let's speak of a menace of almost similar magnitude, which is the fact that the lockdown due to the coronavirus uh, is going to do some strange things, I imagine, to to Hollywood movies, right? What, what's the release schedule like? What 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 are films going to look like in the next couple of months? I'm 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 literally the worst person to ask about this because I really don't watch m- movies in general. I don't watch the movies I'm in. I don't read any of this stuff because you know about movies because it makes me paranoid. So I'm actually I probably know so much less about whatever Hollywood plans to do. I just know that I was supposed to go on a location scout to Bosnia tomorrow because I'm shooting something there and uh, and that got that got you know obviously postponed or canceled or whatever they're saying. And so like it's just disrupted you know, my, my future plans. And, and I was supposed to do a movie in Canada in two weeks. Um, it's obviously disrupted my entire life, like everybody else's, but I couldn't tell you what Hollywood is going to do. I imagine they'll start releasing things on on demand or whatever. Uh, I'm sure this must, I'm sure this will cause, uh, 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 a culture change in the film industry as people are going to be nervous to gather together and you know, in large groups for the probably foreseeable future and maybe thereafter if this has some kind of, I don't know, uh, uh, if this has some kind of impact on the psyche of people gathering in groups for years to come. Maybe it will, I don't know. So you have two movies out on March 27th. Um, We obviously were supposed to be talking to you in studio. We're all on a Zoom call, um, the great democratizer of the internet. How does that change your promo? I mean, I imagine you usually come to New York, do a press day, all this stuff. How does what does your schedule look like? Is it all like Skype calls now? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I was actually excited about was um, they said, "Oh, you're going to be on Jimmy Fallon next week, um, and there's not going to be an audience." Oh, actually, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I want to see that just because it's so <laughs> surreal. Um, and then, of course, the show was canceled. But for like a week, I was supposed to be on the show with no audience, which was. You know, I've worked in off-Broadway for so many years, so I, I know the experience a bit of performing for no audience. <laughs> that was going to be pretty interesting. And now everything, all that stuff is canceled. So no, it's just the telephone, yeah, telephone interviews. And uh, yeah, it's okay. I mean, that, you know, obviously, it's in the grand, I mean, it doesn't make a difference to me at all. But um, yeah, that's, that's, I imagine I'm one of many, many actors pacing around uh, the one quiet room in their house doing, um, you know, interviews that they would have sat in front, you know, they would have done in a hotel room. So a few quarantine related questions for you. You just said you don't watch movies, so maybe you're not the right person to ask, but like, do you have any recommendations for what people can do in quarantine? Uh, Could be books too. Oh, books. I forgot about books. Yeah. Those are like the, I think it's like paper or something. Um, The, um, uh, I don't know, you know, I have a three-year-old, so we watch Peppa Pig all day. So that's, uh, yeah. I mean, my, my big thing was, you know, for anxiety, I watch basketball all the time so i have like league pass which you can watch every game from every team and i was just obsessed with that because it would like just because it had such i know you're not seeing me in person but you can imagine me it has such little to do with my life and um so i would watch that as a distraction then basketball was the first thing to be canceled uh, so that was kind of that was that was a uh, dispiriting but um yes yeah i'm kind of uh um you know, I'm actually staying at uh, my friend Simon Rich's house. I don't know if you ever interviewed him. He is, you know, probably the funniest person on the planet. I think he's called the funniest person on the planet. And so that's quite nice because we can um, we can pitch jokes for each other. I wrote this thing that um, there's this 24-hour plays thing. So I wrote this piece for Richard Kind to perform tonight. Um, so uh, Richard Kind is going to perform this monologue I wrote, and he's going to perform it online. And so it's this kind of like, so I had to write it in the middle of the night last night, he wakes up, tries to memorize it all day and then performs it tonight online. And so people are, yeah, finding little avenues to be, you know, creative and productive. 
Jesse Eisenberg. Thank you for being back on Unorthodox. The movies are Resistance and Vivarium. Watch them on a streaming platform uh, near you, hopefully. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. very choice mailbox this week. I begin with this letter from a new listener named Julie, who is catching up on old episodes, but skipped ahead to the latest episode to see what we were saying about the coronavirus. And she was a little bit upset. She said, it was that story about a couple planning on getting married, but their plans were upended due to the coronavirus. So in order to get around the very restrictive rules of maintaining distance, they decided to not only flout those rules for their own personal needs by having their wedding at a grocery store, but also put thousands of other people at risk. The part that made me so furious was all three of you did not take this opportunity to remind everyone that the stay-in-place orders are very serious and need to be taken seriously. I am disappointed in all three of you for not calling this couple and their attendees out for their selfish behavior. Shame on you, Julie. Um, That was the couple in Israel that had their wedding at the supermarket because big gatherings were still allowed in supermarkets. Uh, I agree. And, you know, I actually... I remember hearing this little small voice inside me saying, like, I should say something. And then I was cowardly about it because it seemed like a good bit that we could all laugh at. I agree with you. Also, it was a week ago. Like, things have changed so much. I know we understood largely, like, what stay in place meant. And obviously, we were all at home. But yeah, it feels like I felt like we could joke about it. But I I, obviously, this is totally right. Yes. Although I was at a Wegmans the other day and standing by the produce section. I was like, should we just randomly propose to people just (laughs) to keep with the tradition? (laughs) I hear they're now doing brisses uh, at the deli section. (laughs) Dear Unorthodox, your recent response to the writer whose fiancé wanted a Jewish home but struggled to define what that meant struck a chord with me. Six years ago, I married a wonderful woman. Judaism worked for her. Christianity could work for me. And then our daughter was born. And all that concept of choice went out the window. I knew I needed to be connected with her and my wife together through God. I feel I owe it to my family to have a deeply rooted set of traditions that we are all a part of because they are special and meaningful to our family as they are to the Jewish community the world over for thousands of years. That is to say, we did have the conversations. We did think we had it figured out. But either life has its way of sorting things out sometimes or God has a way of calling us home. I am now deep into my conversion course with a wonderful team of rabbis at 6th and I in D.C., and know this is where I am called to be. Matt. Welcome home, Matt. Soon. He's not home yet. He's on his way. He's getting there. He's rounding He's stuck third. stuck in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, we talked about that census question that asks what? About your race or nationality? or Ethnic- I don't yeah, know, Sid filled origin. out Ethnicity. our form online. And we were talking, what what should Jews say? Uh, we got a couple phone calls about that. For who let's of unorthodox, it's Saturday night here in Chicago. This is Rebecca calling to wish you a good week, albeit a quarantined one, and give you my response about the census question. I also thought about what to put in the census um, after I checked white Caucasian. And I did put Ashkenazi Jew because I feel like that's my identity. I don't feel Polish, um, Hungarian, Romanian. I don't think going back to those countries would mean anything to me, but I truly feel like I am an Ashkenazi Jew, and that's a part of my heritage and my DNA, um, and I was more than happy to put that down. Hi, I'm calling about a response to your question about the 2020 census. 
And actually, just this morning, my husband and I had a long debate about this because while I was questioning whether I should include Polish and Russian and Bohemian, which doesn't even exist anymore, as my ancestry, we both came to the conclusion that Ashkenazi Jewish was a much better identifier than any of the countries that our grandparents, great-grandparents, or great-great-grandparents came from. The other argument that he made is American, because that's what his nationality is currently, and that's the closest thing that he identifies himself as politically. But, yeah, it is interesting that as an Eastern European Jew, as an Ashkenazi Jew, I don't really connect myself to Polish or Russian or any of the other specific countries of my family's origin, but rather to the larger and broader group that does not have distinguished borders. So this one comes in from the Facebook group. Ruth Charnecki-Lickstein says, I'm just listening to this podcast, catching up. I wanted to respond to Katie's question about guilt and converting. I am a Jew by choice. I was raised Catholic and went to 12 years of Catholic school. There's a funny emoji here. Um, There is definitely a lot of guilt involved when converting. In many, many cases, most probably, you're totally rejecting something that is one of the most important things to the people you love the most. And something that you probably at some point believed or thought you believed. And there are complicated feelings about that. Oh, yeah, it's weird working through changing your worldviews from a Christian one to a Jewish one. This was something my intro to Judaism class touched on a lot and was sensitive to. Just because you still have things ingrained in you doesn't mean you aren't supposed to be Jewish. It also doesn't mean you should ignore them either. That's the whole point of a conversion process. I love that note. Yeah. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Ruth Charnecki-Lichstein. Glad to have you. Okay, now deep into the mailbox. We've been putting this off for a few weeks. We wanted to wait until we had some time. We got this voicemail from somebody who had an interesting question about Veggie Tales, which was something I'd never heard of. Apparently, it's a Christian cartoon show. Yes, for children with vegetables. It's so weird to me that you've done like so much religion work and you don't know about Veggie Tales. Someone in college was doing their thesis on this in the religion department. Well, you know, you you grow and you learn. So let's have a listen. So fun story. I just found out that my non-Jewish ex-husband has been showing Veggie Tales, which is a Christian cartoon, to my kids. I can't really talk to my ex about this. I avoid engaging with him whenever possible so that I'm not inviting unnecessary drama into my life. So my goal is to counter this with great Jewish kids content, um, preferably TV or movie form. Um, We're already subscribed to PJ Library. We're already involved in our synagogue. My younger child attends a Jewish daycare. My older child is enrolled in religious school. So we have the real life stuff covered. Um, I'm mostly looking for um, screen time content because they love their TV. We do love Shaboom, um, but the episodes are very short and there also aren't that many of them. Um, And Shalom Sesame is not a hit with them. Um, They don't really like Sesame Street in general, um, probably because it's not animated, but whatever. So I'm just wondering what else is out there? Um, My kids are five and two. I can't remember if I mentioned that. Anything that you can think of um, that I could share with them would be helpful. Thanks in advance. All right. So what about it, J. Crew? This listener wants to know what is some great Jewish kids content uh, that she could use to fight back against the veggie tales that her children are being fed, the crudité of veggie tales, Christianity that her children are getting when away from her house. I would go with Operation Thunderbolt, the <laughs> mythical movie about the Entebbe rescue. Is it animated? Every child should. It's animating. Every child should watch that. I'm excited for like the West Side Story rumble between the VeggieTales and whatever like the Jewish equivalent are. And I will watch that. Just play some Uncle Moishi. Uh, listen, why aren't your kids listening to Unorthodox? Problem solved. Judaism solved. I don't know. You guys have been cursing like off the rails this week. Uh, listeners, we want to hear from you or really our listener wants to hear from you. She wants your advice. Send us an email, unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914 914- 
570-4869. We got a Facebook message from one Todd Waldman who says, my family is looking to add another symbol to our Seder plate to symbolize the COVID-19 Pesach Seder. We were thinking of a lone puzzle piece to remember that we might all be apart, but that we're still part of a larger whole. Looking for some other suggestions. Hey, when you're writing to us about Veggie Tales, you could also suggest something for Todd's Seder. And we would like to know as well. It's a great, it's a great idea. I love that. I just want to say that like the idea of taking one puzzle piece out of a puzzle and putting it somewhere else gives me a lot of anxiety because there's no way that puzzle piece <laughs> yeah, is going back in that too. puzzle. And then like two weeks from now, when you guys need to do a puzzle because we were all going crazy, you're going to be like, where's that freaking lone puzzle piece that symbolizes all of us? <laughs> Mazel tovs. I'd like to start with Alicia Nachamovitz, a marathoner who spent six hours and 48 minutes running a marathon on his balcony in Toulouse, France. He's furloughed from work as France enters a 15-day lockdown, uh, but he wanted to run a marathon. He had to run it in place, or I guess, I don't know if he ran the seven meters back and forth. Or he, just he did. There's a place. video of the whole thing. It is entrancing he- to watch. <laughs> <laughs> six six thousand laps on his balcony. Six thousand. So laps. He, he broke the seven hour marathon for balcony runners. Uh, Alicia Nachamovitz of France, Mazel Tov to you. Felicitations. I have a Mazel Tov for people who, similarly to running in place, um, the tablet staff who basically spent the past week getting this site up and running in these unusual and crazy times, um, all remotely, and just really happy to work with such great people. Mazel Tov, Simon Tov. I'd like to give a Mazel Tov to my shul. Romemu on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, who really within hours of of social distancing getting into effect, had a list in which people could volunteer to help other people in the community, in which people could say what it was that they needed. And I'm I'm on this list and I'm just so incredibly touched by seeing so many people, even at this time of uncertainty and and fear and anxiety, just rise up and and want wholeheartedly to help other people. I'm meant to that. Producer Josh. All right. I just need to take a split second and give a mazel tov to every single person who's listening to this, because this last week has pretty much sucked, and so has the last month in a lot of ways for a lot of people. So like Liel said, you had permission to put your kid in front of screens, or if you just need to let your cat lick your face constantly, or you're just sitting at home drinking the rest of the scotch in your bar, hang in there. And mazel tov to you for trying to do so. Josh, I totally thought that you were going to give a mazel tov to your pot dealer who does home delivery. <laughs> he, he used a stick to hold it out the car window. I swear to God, it was safe. By the way, are they an essential business? Are dealers an essential business in New York? The dispensaries are, yeah. yeah. Well, good. Joking aside, the, the pot dealer I am aware of was rationing. You were limited at two bags per person. Isn't that what they're doing at the eggs at Sarah's grocery? <laughs> eggs, weed, it's all the essentials. Okay. Uh, are we done? Yeah, Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at the newly redesigned tabletmag.com. Go check it out now. You will not be sorry. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us and leave a voicemail on 914-570-4869. To advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross, cross with a K at tabletmag.com. You should be wearing and carrying Unorthodox too, especially as you're probably spending a lot of time in, shall we say, athleisure or house leisure. And if you go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt, we have sweatshirts, we have t-shirts, lots of stuff you'd want to lounge around inside in. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. 
Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Tablet's editor-in-chief is Alana Newhouse. Our executive editor is Wayne Hoffman. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi John J. Tilson, my rabbi, for reminding us that tears may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And we come to you from Argo Studios, whose proprietor, Paul Ruest, would give up his face mask for us, and we for him. Shalom, friends. It's always darkest before the doom. You know what I'm talking about?